Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 122 of the Citrix Session. I'm your, your host, your ringleader, uh, gang leader. I'm not sure what it is, Andy Whiteside. Today is uh, December 5th, 2022. I throw the date in there now, so help myself keep it straight. Uh, screwed up a couple a couple of weeks ago. Um, so now I'm working on that, making it better. I'm trying to improve myself, guys. That's, that's what it is. Uh, I've got a great, uh, great, great, great panel of folks today. I've got Bill Sutton, Director of Services. Bill, how's it going? Going great, Andy. You uh, getting ready to buy all those Christmas presents? Oh yeah, it's already started. My uh, my son and I sat down and ordered uh, some Christmas presents yesterday. It was so much easier than the old days. I'll leave it at that. So yeah, I can remember. Be, I can remember being the uh, single guy at uh, eleven o'clock on Christmas Eve, running through the mall trying to buy the last minute oh. gifts. Um, now I'm the married guy, pretty much doing the same thing, except I do it online two days before. Yeah. <laughs> It's getting expensive though. It's getting way more expensive. Maybe yeah, it's just it my kids my, my kids are getting older and what they are into is not cheap. But I did do a, a, a look up. I wanted to find how much that Super Nintendo from back in the day was. Now my kid wants an Oculus. And wow. Here we are. Yeah, my son asked for a fourteen hundred dollar thing the other day, and I've got one. And so he just assumed he should have one. It's crazy, especially when you like toys yourself. And Amazon Claus comes every single day. <laughs> That was the voice of Jeremy Myers. Jeremy is the uh, director of the sales engineers on the East Coast for Citrix. Jeremy, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. I just got a just got a notification that Baker Mayfield just got dropped, Todd. So I thought you might appreciate that little nugget of info from the Panthers. Long live the history of Baker. <laughs> the myth of Baker Mayfield. Did they play yesterday? Mm-mm. Okay. They had a bye. They had a bye week. They didn't lose. They didn't lose. That's, that's a good point. I was so busy this weekend. I couldn't tell. I raked leaves for the fifth week in a row. I live in the woods. It's insane. Yes. I, out. I want to move every year this time. And then I realize how beautiful it is the rest of the year. But man, five weeks in a row, raking leaves, at least one a weekend day. Todd Smith, uh, Director of Sales Engineering for all of Canada. How's it going? I'm doing well, Gandy. How are you? I'm good. Last week I was at AWS. So I'm, I didn't get home until Saturday. And, uh, Holy cow, 60,000 people at a conference? I'd never seen such a thing. So uh, competing with the old consumer electronics show. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's still bigger. Uh, all yeah. the Uber drivers were like, oh, this is nothing. We can come back in January or whatever it is. January or December. Which one was it? Yeah, January, typically. Yeah. yeah. So I remember, I remember going out there when it was the old Comdex. Hmm. Well, in this that's situation, it. it was AWS plus the rodeo was in town. That was quite interesting. <laughs> that's funny now where was it at this year that was las vegas i don't think you could have anywhere else it's too that's big fair. i'll tell you what we did it in atlanta a few years ago and the thing that struck me so citrus had a booth and you know i'm the virtualization guy don't get me wrong i love netscaler but you know i'm the virtualization guy and the folks who came up to me were primarily interested in networking which i thought was pretty interesting and then just walking around a lot of the booths what was really exciting was just the ecosystem of what is aws so that's when I, I got my first taste of what DevOps was and just the, all the little players, all, not the little players, but just all the players in this space. And yeah. I mean, it was data lakes and DevOps and just the, the entire arena was pretty, really interesting, actually. Yeah. yeah, I was impressed in the Expo Hall, all the different vendors we work with in the UC space, which, Jeremy, I think you would find, I think you'd find that if you went this year, in user compute was very much a small conversation, uh, but bigger than ever and bigger than I thought it would be. It is interesting. I think AWS has caught on to that middleware, that end user story, and how you know that's a 
a starting point for lots of other technology conversations in their ecosystem. Uh, and pandemic, right, had an impact on people needing to explore this world. But I'll tell you this, and I mean, you got too far. I was in many, many, many sessions where people, they didn't know what RDP was. They mm-hmm. didn't know what a virtual desktop was. They didn't know what a hypervisor was. It's a whole new generation of people, some young, some old, that don't know what it is we do every day and act like it's just being invented for the first time. It was insane. I'll tell you what's interesting. And, you know, I guess it's sort of a little bit of a lead into the blog post we've got today, but, you know, running uh, Linux in Azure, the idea of standing up a Linux VDA, virtual desktop agent in Azure, um, you roll out a a Linux machine and you have to actually go in and install the GUI. You have to go in and install RDP and all these different steps. And, you know, I've monkeyed around with Linux over the years just on a physical desktop. And that's something I've never had to do before. And yet I find myself, you know, tracking down the exact app get packages just to install GNOME. It's, it's fascinating because you've got folks who are doing Linux in, in the clouds who this is not something this is not something they need, right? Yeah. So it's very interesting. Well that that's part of my topic too uh, from last week. I was talking to a guy, young guy, he was all about how he wanted to, to virtualize his desktop users but had no idea where to even start. I'm like, okay, where you been? But he was young. He didn't know any different. And I started talking about RDP, like remote desktoping into a, a terminal server or something to get work done. It's like I don't know what that is. And finally, I said, well, SSH. He goes, oh, I do SSH all the time. It's like, oh, okay, now we can talk. And he got the concept once I could tie it back to a, a CLI world. So our, our last panelist, Mr. Patrick Coble. Patrick, I assume you're sitting in Tennessee somewhere. Or are you somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. I just got back from uh, Wisconsin for a VMUG and then leave out in a day to Cincinnati and then Portland the week after. So, yeah, it's uh, musical cities for the next little bit. Well, that's the life you live, right? Yeah. So I will note while I got Patrick in the spotlight here, Patrick does an amazing job doing VDI security assessments. If you have a virtual app or desktop environment and you don't have Patrick looking at it or someone like Patrick, because he's probably one of the only, his team's probably the only one of the teams on the planet that actually does this for a living, uh, you need to, because the the opportunity to find security vulnerabilities that nobody else is looking for inside a virtual app and desktop environment is a no-brainer that you should make sure you have that covered probably on a quarterly basis. Patrick, would your ideal customer, how often would they take a look at that environment? Uh, Most people, when we do an audit, uh, that's yearly, but sometimes it takes months to remediate. So I've had clients that have had to, that it's taken uh, almost a year to remediate because they had hundreds of findings because we looked at Active Directory, we looked at Privilege Account Management, and we looked at like VDI security, which is kind of the big three thing, the trifecta of success or doom, depending on how they're configured. And is it, do you agree with what I said just now that your normal um, intrusion protection uh, or um, your normal security audit is not going to be looking for the things you're looking for, at least in the virtual side of the equation? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In most cases, uh, they completely exclude that domain, that deployment, that whole thing uh, from the audit. And even in some some big deployments that I would have never thought it would be like that is like that. Um, and it's, And so that expertise of the VDI side to make sure that your session policies are strong and that you have SSL and TLS turned on in the right places and the right settings configured for security, um, you know, gets overlooked if you did any uh, penetration test from somebody that wasn't VDI aware. What's what's the term I'm looking for? Not intrusion protection, but what the the, the type of audit. Uh, well, I mean, it's a vulnerability assessment or it's a penetration test. Penetration so you, test. I couldn't yep. get it out. Yeah. Yep. 
And, and what I think is interesting about this whole conversation is a lot of times you build this uh, in parallel virtual app and desktop presentation streaming world uh, to get around, you know, the normal stuff. But when you go to audit, you don't audit that stuff because, but yet this is the stuff you invented or created to go around the traditional stuff. And you just sit there and look at the traditional stuff over and over again. That's right. All right. Well, guys, the uh, the blog we agreed on today was from November 17th. It says, deliver an amazing UX with a non-domain joined NDJ. You guys were talking a while ago about that acronym, and that's the first time I've seen it, but maybe everybody else has. Uh, Citrix Linux VDA, which is uh, virtual delivery agent in this case. Um, guys, why why does this matter? Who's, who's using Linux in their virtual desktop world? Um, I'll, I'll go to Bill first because, Bill, you were talking about a project where we ran into this recently. When do we see this come up? Well, I think when it comes to there's two there's really two pieces of this question. When it comes to Linux, I think it, it a lot of it is is certain industries that favor Linux, and I think this is dealt with in the article probably. Uh, the one we've we've seen historically with in our projects is oil and gas. Um, so we've we've had a couple of customers that wanted to leverage um, Linux workloads. Uh, with um, Citrix virtual apps and desktops for the purposes of accessing certain applications that were written or developed in the Linux platform or on the Linux platform. And uh, those, however, those were domain joined. So you had to install lots of things on the image in order to enable that to connect properly to Active Directory and allow for Active Directory based authentication and things along those lines. What this is talking about is the concept of that Linux VDA and and by extension we, we also and this will come up. I had a situation where we had a Windows environment where the customer wanted to access non-domain joined um, workloads uh, running in the cloud, really running anywhere for that matter. Um, so the concept of non-domain joined has really always not been around. Uh, we, we've always required Active Directory or some other sort of identity provider. In the case of CVAD it, or Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktop, it's always been Active Directory as the repository for the user accounts and all the security and such. Uh, but this concept of non-domain joined is something relatively new, I think. Um, so to, that's really kind of two answers to one question. But um, the, the Linux pieces, we've seen it mostly in oil and gas, but non-domain joined is a whole new ballgame. And I want to do that. I want to encourage the group to, uh, as you talk to this, explain not only the Linux piece, but the non-domain join piece and how it applies to the Windows world. Todd, you, you've got uh, the Canadian team these days. Um, have you seen enough? Uh, have you had enough time in the seat there to see the oil and gas piece of Canada looking yeah. for this type of solution? Yeah, a little bit, Andy. I mean, we've got, uh, obviously, Western Canada has a ton of oil and gas. Um and it's it's definitely got a use case. We're seeing an awful lot in the education space as well for Linux. Um, it is primarily due to the cost model, right? So uh, people see Linux as being a, a much lower cost alternative to giving someone a full-blown Windows environment. Uh, and with students not being joined to the domain uh, on their devices, that could open up a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity as well. Um, but we're, I think part of it is also generational. And this is where the, the challenge that we've got, you know, our users have actually changed some of their behavior. Um, they're doing much more in a, in, a, in a Linux environment because it's not always the same as the Windows, it's a little bit more open source driven. Um, so we're seeing a lot more of that. 
So guys, we're are we we're talking about the machine itself, the the VDA, the desktop, yeah. the server that we're connecting to, not being joined to the domain. Um, but the user is in some kind of directory, uh, maybe Active Directory, and maybe not. Pat, Patrick, how does this is what I just said true, and how does this change the security landscape? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it's right because this is this is a good way for any any system joined to Active Directory has inherent rights unless you have locked it down to pretty much everything in the domain. Uh, even when we were back in the 80s and internet used to fall out the back of the cable if you didn't put a terminator on the BNC connector, same thing happens here. You can uh, A domain computer can join a domain computer to the domain. A domain user can join it to the domain. A guest can join it to the domain. So you can have a lot of device prolifer proliferation unintendedly because of default after directory permission. So if you haven't fixed those things, then you just being a member of the domain is an inherent risk to the domain. So I, I agree with Bill. I've seen this in oil and gas, and I've seen it in a couple banking uh, industries too. Um, and so they get off windows so they don't have to worry about that because they can ensure that there's no, they don't, they have no more extra privileges on that system other than what's allowed um, based on the Linux distro that they pick. So it can make a make a good impact. It's not for everybody. I think the most important thing that's overlooked, and I've done a couple audits on non-domain joined systems on the Windows side and a couple on the Linux, is that then those devices become completely unmanaged and they're just wild, wild west. So you still want some type of big fix, Tanium, Intune, whatever your poison of choice is to make sure you still know what in the world that endpoint is doing and not just make it non-domain joined and just hope for the best. It's it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Where you've got, uh, you want it in the domain so you know it's there and you know what you're trying to monitor and maintain and secure at the same time that gives its privileges. In the Microsoft world, it gives you access to things like being able to join it to the domain that you may not want somebody to have, which is enables, it's a two-way street. Jeremy, would you agree that that's what you see in the Microsoft world often? Yeah, 100%. But you know what? I think um, what we're also seeing is, especially for like cloud native environments, um, you've got customers who don't need AD. They don't need Active Directory. Um, they don't want to stand up an Active Directory simply for, you know, identity. You know, they just want to stand up desktops in the cloud. And the identity they want to use is something else. Google, you know, ping, you know, pick an identity doesn't really matter. But you've got some folks who are just, they don't need it, right? So they find themselves standing up an arbitrary directory simply to support traditional end-user compute um, for things like Windows. And so, you know, I think and maybe what this this article is really getting to is you got options, right? You, know, you don't necessarily need Active Directory to support this anymore. You know, you don't need um, you don't need domain joined machines uh, to provide access. So this is a this is a fascinating article in a few different areas that bleeds over into the Windows world, even though this is specifically Linux focused. So let me ask this question to the group, and you guys just respond as you want. Do you think Microsoft's got to the point where they see that this is part of the future and they're open to not having to control the directory and where the machines live? They just want to be part of the workloads? They do. They do. And if you look at their architectures around Azure AD, right, so you don't necessarily need um, Active Directory um, back or Active Directory backing your Azure AD accounts if you don't need to. There's a way to do it. They have hybrid AD join. But if you go look at creating and spinning up Windows machines in Azure these days, it gives you the option to, to leverage Azure AD as a single sign-on point. Um, so even Microsoft understands that identity is a big deal here. 
And the way things have been done for 20 years is certainly changing. And so I, I think they very much get it. Yeah. So is, guys, would you agree that, um, so that fight over the directory where the machine lived, it's still there, but there's so many different avenues to take these days that nobody's going to go to their grave fighting over that one. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. So guys, before I move on, uh, David Pisa is the author of this blog. I want to make sure he gets credit for that. We're just the guys talking about it. He's the smart guy that wrote it up. Um, let's jump in the next section, uh, requirements and current limitations. Uh, Todd, you want to try to tell us what David's covering here? Yeah, so so a couple of things, right? So, uh, you know, you, you need to know a little bit about what the restrictions are, or what the limitations are. Um, it is currently focused on DAS, right? So it's our desktop as a service offering. Um, and you have to be using the Netscaler gateway service. Uh, and if you're using Linux desktops, you have to be deploying them using machine creation services or MCS. So it's, it's kind of a focused approach. Um, there are some limitations, right? So, uh, you know, storefront not being supported, you have to use Citrix Workspace and the Nescaler Gateway service. Um, once again, uh, you need to be able to uh, understand that we, we also don't support the uh, remote PC right now. Um, you know, once again, we've, we've got a lot of product documentation that includes this, for, so there's some very, very valuable links in here about where to go to, to find uh the restrictions and limitations um but the biggest thing is you know understanding where uh what linux distributions it covers and what uh will also what hypervisors are supported as well um so let me ask this to the, yep. the rest of the team any any concerns about the, those limitations and those being showstoppers for possible use cases um, not really. I mean, I think if this is your use case is non-domain join, you know, let's be clear about this. You know, with the on-premise product, you know, we support Linux, right? And we support yeah. Linux that are domain joined. So that use case is not stopped. Um, that works with storefront. It works with the on-prem Netscaler as well. But, you know, I think what we're talking about here is specifically, um, you know, non-domain join access, which, I mean, I, I don't know if we have a parallel on-prem outside of maybe anonymous access, maybe the closest thing, but it's it's sort of a new concept and it's specifically cloud focused. So, you know, I think for customers looking for this type of access, um, they're probably also looking for um, maybe a unique directory as well. So maybe Google is an IDP, maybe Azure AD. I don't know. It probably makes sense to be on the Citrix cloud platform just as a, just as an ease to roll out, if I'm being honest, but like I said, just so we're clear, this works on-prem. It's just not non-domain non join. You can do Linux VDAs on-prem for sure. Is this yeah. an example of something you think is going to eventually come to the on-prem version or an example of how you can do things in the service offering that you'll never be able to do with on-prem? Man, if I had a crystal ball there, I would love to tell you one way or the other. Um, but I will say this, Citrix is very committed to the on-premise product, so it wouldn't surprise me, but I know nothing whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and. It, and just to chime in here, you know, I think Jeremy brought up a very valid point about the anonymous access. Um, we're seeing customers across the board moving away from this anonymous access model. Um, and I'm sure Patrick probably sees this in his uh, security audits that he does a lot where uh, customers and the compliance programs moving away from uh, allowing anonymous access. You need to be able to identify who the users are. 
and where they're coming in from and all the all the other security components and anonymous access kind of just breaks that entire model yeah for sure i mean uh, kyc laws depending on your industry know your customer have been cranked up to 11 and so you you as a business in most cases uh banking retail especially socks pci hipaa uh, you have you can't allow anonymous access to things like that to any type of sensitive or privileged information. So you you have to know who they are. Um, so, and then one point out we were talking about on the Azure AD side is I stood up a client that did cloud PC. So their very first time they ever did it, just kind of a side story. But this goes to show you that Azure AD is not secure by default. They went next, 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 joined the cloud, chugging the Kool-Aid, got their virtual desktops, had Azure AD, next, next, next. And what's its security score? What would you guess the security score is? Azure AD, out of the box, never had a good configuration or bad configuration. It's a 100-point scale. Has anyone got guesses? You know what? I'll say I'll say a C. So we'll, we'll, go, we'll say 75. Out of 75? Bill, what are you thinking? Probably 20, 25. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Jeremy? Uh, that was Jeremy. Uh, that was me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I go oh, seventy-five. Yeah, okay, seventy-five. Yeah. So, would, would a Bill say twenty-five? I'll do yeah, twenty-five point one. Okay, he's doing prices right rules. <laughs> Playing prices right game. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going twenty. Everyone hates. Everyone hates seven, that nine. guy, Todd. Everyone hates yeah. that guy. But so, everyone I'm likes the guy who wants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's fifty-two point seven eight. Yes. Out of the wow. box, an F. <clears throat> right. Right. And that goes to show you that. Active Directory out of the box, even from Microsoft, from the mothership on the cloud Kool-Aid, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. You still have hundreds of policies that have to be configured. And that backwards compatibility of legacy operating systems is the number one reason it's like that. Um, And so it it just kind of blew my mind. I was like, no way, because it's the first time I had ever set up a new Active Directory tenant that wasn't synced from someone's old Active Directory tenant, you know, so kind of wild. But that's where this non-domain join stuff comes in, because if you've got an F on your AD uh, right now, because you just set it up in Azure AD, you can have an A plus on the Linux side when it comes to, you know, what permissions those users are effectively going to have on those systems. So it could be a good trade. And that's just the legacy of Microsoft trying to make things doable, easier, accomplishable. Mm-hmm. And it, it's still there. I mean, still a decade or two decades after getting serious about security, which they have. Yep. But still, if you just follow the, the default installs, you end up in a place where you need Patrick Coble to come talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's just Active Directory. Yeah, we're we're sitting here staring at this part here, where uh, on the page where on the Linux VDA where you got to install your whatever uh, UI of choice there is. Uh, this is kind of something that blew me away. I didn't know you couldn't join something to Microsoft Intune without a GUI. There's no command line interface to do that. So, like, if you're on Amazon Linux, Ubuntu, Red Hat, SUSE, whatever, whatever flavor of choice you pick, you have to put a GUI on there so that you can walk through their wizard to enroll the device. So you can install Intune, but it can't connect to the mothership. So if we're looking at this little line here, it's getting all the um, goodies done for .NET so that the VDA will be happy. I love the fact that you've got a few different desktops. I mean, that's that's always been sort of yeah. the thing with Linux is you got options there. There's actually, I think, three or five different ways you can add Linux to a domain if you need to. Like yes. there's 
Yeah. There's certain ways to do that. I just, it, it's very interesting how this, this whole ecosystem works is completely different than what I'm used to. Oh yeah. Yeah. The idea you have to install a user UI right. on this machine to go. Well, so, okay. So make sure in order to do this, a non-domain joined VDA, you have to have a UI. That's what this is pointing out. Um, yep. Yes. Todd, any additional contact content you want to add to that? No, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I think the fact that we're going back to a conversation around command line uh, brings us back to the days when we all probably had to deal with uh, auto exec.bat files and login scripts and all that fun yeah. stuff. Command.bat and all that good yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I mean, my, my Linux and uh, AIX or Unix friends probably get didn't appreciate that comment, Todd, but yes, command line. Chill. Like chill, he, chill. I kind of grew up around a Unix guy, and he made it clear earlier on that the command line thing I was messing with, and you know, NT days is not the same as a shell, which these days it is a shell with PowerShell. Yeah. Oh, and, and to go back to what I just said, you got multiple options for a shell too. You got yeah. you get Bash, you get the regular shell. So well, I mean, and then it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit about Microsoft and Linux in that situation. You can run their Linux. You can run PowerShell on anything now. You can run their Visual Studio code on anything now, uh, and you can run Linux on Windows now. So that Windows 11 desktop that we're on right now, you can run Linux on it and use its UI and command structure. Uh, so the, the force is strong now with Microsoft and Linux. It's, it's, it's going there. So I think it's because they also you know, want to be able to be in on that deal. So someone will still have something. Yeah, this Linux train's coming. Uh, for various reasons, and Microsoft didn't stupid. They want to be part of that. Plus, now you got this Azure thing where they want any workload possible on Azure, whether it's based on a Windows kernel or not. Um, uh, yeah, right. I, yeah I, think, I think they would tell you that a lot of their workloads in Azure are probably Linux-based. So it's, it behooves them. I could use an old word. <laughs> it behooves them to, to really invest, for sure. I mean, the site that's currently running the Citrix blogs, do you think that's a Windows box behind the scenes? Probably not. Probably not. And then now some end-user workloads are showing up there as well. All right, so uh, Bill, as the technical guy, or and all of us are technical, but as the guy who actually has consultants out doing work, this cover this .net, .net thing for me and why, why it matters. Well, I'm not going to go into all the details because there's a boatload of them in here, but fundamentally, I think Patrick touched on it. You need .net to install and, and run the VDA for Linux. So you know, the .net runtime is is what is it, Visual Studio or Visual C++? I'm not sure what the language is that underlies it or if it's its own oh, language, but... Oh, it, it, it's it's kind of, it's almost true .NET. Uh, .NET. It's basically just an interpreter. Right. Uh, it, I, I said this at a conference last week because uh, mm-hmm. they were talking about PowerShell and how you can run it on anything now. And uh, I, they were like, well, you, ha- you can run PowerShell on anything, but you have to put .NET on it first. And I was like, oh, yeah, so .NET's pretty much the Microsoft Java. And it was like I, I stabbed a couple people in the heart. They were like, you can't say that in the same sentence. I was like, right. it's a universal programming language that can be obfuscated and created on other operating systems. I was like, that's the definition of what Java was. For for better or for worse, it's for the right. better part for now. Um, but .NETs have to get updated all the time, too, because of threats. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think. 
I think the takeaway here, Andy, is that this is just it's a dependency. It's a requirement in order for the VDA to run properly. You have the same dependency on Windows. You've got to have the correct version of the .NET runtime running on that operating system in order for the VDA and other applications to run properly. And that's really what they're talking about here on Linux. I think the big difference, right, in modern-day Windows, <clears throat> I don't know how long this has been, but it's been a while. .NET's just on there. Whether it's the updated version or not, it's a whole other question. But right. I don't, I don't remember having to install .NET or having you know the Windows, the Citrix installer kick off a .NET install in a while. Maybe I just haven't done enough of them. Yeah, it, it fires it off. It and, does. Uh, yep. And then and then that's the same thing now with PowerShell, right? It's like if you, depending on your operating system, it's PowerShell 5. They skipped 6 because it was just like a terrible experience for the whole world. And now everything's on 7. So if you haven't updated your PowerShell to 7, then it's not, it doesn't come down automatically from Windows updates. Right. So... So let me clarify that real quick. So when I do a server install, it installs .NET and then the VDA. When I do a client install, in other words, on Windows 10 or 11, isn't .NET already there or am I just not? It, it, it should be, but I think all it does is do some prereqs for it. So if you've got a fully up-to-date system, uh, I, I don't think it blasts it down anymore. Um, yeah. But I think it also obfuscates a lot of that in the new installer. So it might be doing it and you just don't know right. before it did actually show the lines of it doing all these things. I think it's there. And I think that ties in this conversation in the server, multi-user VDA, they don't put, Microsoft doesn't put stuff on the server it doesn't need. Therefore, .NET's not there until you need it. And then all of a sudden you're going to need it for the VDA. But in the client OS, I think it is there. And it's just a matter of configuring it when the VDA installs. If I remember the install process right. Nonetheless, in Linux world, you got to do it. And then now you've got to go out and get the Citrix virtual desktop agent. Oh, wait, virtual delivery agent. Sorry, I went old school for a minute there. Right. Did I use the right uh, acronym or the right uh, definition, yep. Jeremy? You did. You did. You did, although it is funny that it says in desktop VDA. So that's... Yeah. Well, so that's a little contradiction, but we'll, it, we'll look past that. You know, it's it's baked in there. It's, you know... <laughs> Hey, we still got Dazzle in the registry, so I, th I think we yeah, can do that. That's right. Here. Dazzle lives on forever. <laughs> that's I right. Think it's going to be like a cockroach in the Citrix world. It's going to be there forever. Uh, <laughs> and I'm and I'm excited and always happy every time I see it in the registry. <laughs> I love you it. like that in this? Uh, okay, so I've, I put the desktop you the user UI on. I've downloaded through some browser, I assume. Um, I assume you guys tell me if they're actually probably going to do that through the uh, the CLI or the shell. And then now I'm doing the whole package install from. The command line. Yeah, you, yes, you probably be able to, you you can see that your the way that package works in the Debian package manager for this, uh, you just pull it down from its its repository, so you don't have to actually do, uh, you don't have to go to the website for anything. And, and this is probably a little side joke and pretty telling about me, but when I do get a chance to work in Shell, which is almost no none of the time anymore, but when I was doing my AX stuff and Linux stuff, anytime I typed the command and I started seeing it do all its magical things and number and letters going across the screen, I just felt so smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Linux, Linux in that sense does have a very gratifying UI when you have it right. Because it's telling you what it's doing and it's telling you with little ASCII characters and, oh, I'm at 13%. And it really is at 13% versus we're so used to Windows installers where it says 13% and that's still another hour and a half. Right. It's a random number generator, actually. Totally. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, back in the day, you used to have, we used to install Novell products. You'd have a dot that uh -huh. kept working its way across the screen. And directory, yeah, man. Yeah. That was good stuff. I do like this one line though. So you can see what what that installer does is it not only installs the VDA, but it goes and it grabs all the dependencies 
um, from the, it looks like we're probably running Ubuntu here, right? So yeah. you know, we're grabbing the, uh, the Ubuntu dependencies, but you'll notice down below, there's a, there's a special command called su do app fix broken install. And it will, it will fix your install, which is amazing. I've never had to run that, but I just think that's amazing that they've included that. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a Linux, uh, debate. That's like, you know, uh, Chevy versus Toyota or whatever is what pseudo does. And, uh, because it gets used so much and it's the way to obfuscate. So you don't have to change into root, but since right. you use it so much, you pretty much are root, you know, you're just not root with root. So that's very true. All right, guys. So help me understand this next piece where we're configuring the VDA. Uh, am I doing this through a UI or am I doing this through? No, that's all command line too. It's a one liner. Yep. So that way it knows how to ET phone home to the DAS mothership. And it yep. says, let's see, by bypassing the local cloud connectors, the machine must have the following range of it. So um, what, what does it mean by bypassing the cloud connectors? So in a traditional Citrix environment with like Windows machines, what you would Typically, although you can do this with Windows machines, right. a lot of times with the Windows machines, you know, you're identifying the cloud connectors as your your brokers, if you will, mm -hmm. and the cloud connector is going to register that virtual that VDA on behalf of the cloud, right? So it goes to the to the cloud connector, the cloud or the VDA goes to the cloud connector to register, and the cloud connector registers that VDA with with the cloud service. What we're doing here is skipping the cloud connectors altogether, and so in this case, you've got your VDAs registering directly with the DAS service. And so in order to do that, you got to have a username and password. I mean, why else would, you know, the cloud, you know, trust you. So um, in Citrus Cloud, we don't call it username and password. We call it client ID and secret. And so that's what we're creating here. And that's what you'll use on your Linux VDA uh, as sort of a, an authentication piece. What's nice about this is if you're running something like MCS, which is what we're doing here, you know, that same client username and password can be used with all the MCS images as well. So all these machines will register directly with the DAS service. And so MCS, because this isn't single monolithic images, MCS, because this isn't, um, you know, provisioning server worthy or qualifiable or both? Uh, MCS, so that we can do a little bit. Uh, well, MCS versus PBS is one question. So uh, in this case, we're just... It's a native tool, so there's not additional pieces to set up. So we're doing we're doing MCS. But secondly, I think Patrick hit on this, right? So how do you manage non-domain machines in a scenario where you don't have a typical tool that you're going to install them to manage them, right? So in the Windows world, yeah, we'd have group policies. Well, now we're non-domain joined. How do we manage this? So we can still do single image management of non-domain joined machines. So we update and patch once. Yeah. All of my linked images, they all get it. Is, is that because, so I totally get that. And I understand provisioning services and it's magical active directory related stuff it did. So forget about that for a minute, but I, I need to use MCS if I want image management. I couldn't do this on standalone machines or I could. Uh, no, I don't, I don't. I think you have to use MCS uh, because I don't think this is, I, well, I guess you could not use it. Well, no, you would, because even if you did persistent desktops, as soon as you make that machine catalog, it's going to walk you through all that. So, yeah, and then and then that way everything's a clone of each other. So just like he said, is you get that patch done once, and then you roll it out, you're done for all. 
Um, but it just means you've got to pay attention uh, to it. And honestly, in some cases, Linux, depending on the, how you do your packaging, can stay up to date and more secure than Windows because Windows will only update Windows, right? So if you don't have Patch My PC or some other third-party patching thing going on, it's not going to patch that Adobe and that other application, the other application. Whereas when you do app get or yum update or upgrade on any Linux box, it updates every single thing that's installed, every package, every dependency, every little doodad. Uh, and Windows doesn't do that by default. Mm-hmm. And Andy, let's not forget, if we're doing this in a cloud, um, if you're doing that pull desktop, now we can, we can turn on auto scaling. So if I've got dedicated desktops, then that means for all 100 users, I've got 100 machines that, you know, for a good user experience, um, I got to predict when those users are going to be on so I can power it on appropriately or on all the time. And it gets very expensive. Where in this case, you know, we could do a pool desktop, even the Linux machines, and just scale up, scale down as we need to. So we can potentially just reduce that cloud spend if we need to. <clears throat> yeah. So just for my clarification, we're talking about pooled, non-persistent images. Could you, and you guys may not know the answers, but could you do persistent, a uh, pooled, excuse me, not pooled, but um, assigned MCS images where the differencing disk lived on until you updated the image and it would break it all? Or did that even make sense? I know you can on on site in the classic deployment because I've done it. So you you can do that there, and I would guess you'd probably be able to do it here. I think this is showcasing the the DAS portion, which would definitely probably be more in line with that non persistent side, but it should still be able to do the same dance. I would guess. Yeah, yeah I and so this, yeah, go ahead, Andy. I'm sorry. I, I was I, what I'm bringing up is kind of a very corner case and probably almost stupid to bring up, but that's where my mind went. So sorry about that, Jeremy. Go ahead. Um, no, I was going to hit on that one graphic you've got right there. So, you know, what we're doing in this particular instance is we are registering this Linux VDA directly with the DAS service, but we're brokering the HDX session through the cloud connector. Um, what you see later in this article is I think we're probably going to run out of time. Um, we can also do this completely connectorless if we need to, which means not only can we register directly with the DAS service, but we can bypass the connector as well if we're using Rendezvous version 2. Uh, which is a protocoling uh, that we use yeah. um, with the VDAs uh, and just bypass connectors altogether. So the next section here goes into setting up the uh, the runtime environment, MCS configuration, mm-hmm. how they're stored, where they're stored. But what, 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 if anything, do we need to, for our listeners, highlight in this section about the runtime environment? Uh, you have to do it exactly right or it will not work. Attention That's to detail true. is lost. <laughs> Uh, no Patrick, choose your correct text editor. Good luck. But but Patrick, does this make your skin crawl as a security guy for standard nah. installations? Leave everything as their default yeah, values. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it does. It's just, it's kind of the nature of the beast a little bit. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the good thing is, is, in many cases, this stuff can't work unless it's perfectly configured. So if you mess up on one of these lines here, um, then it's not going to do its dance. So. So Patrick, do you ever do a project and then turn around, come back the next day and offer an assessment and go find all the things that you little nuggets you left behind for yourself? Yeah, usually I try not to leave too many nuggets, but the thing is, is Microsoft and Citrix and VMware and pretty much every technology company makes new nuggets all the time. So I pretty much always have to be watching kind of the cybersecurity news kind of thing and the patches that come out for the operating systems to try to understand what the next thing is. Yeah. Okay, so we've got our template created, shut down, and now we're going through creating the uh, 
creating the catalog and the uh, delivery group. Bill, you want to kind of just walk us through anything special about this piece? Well, I, if you scroll up a little bit, I found an interesting uh, interesting item. Um, if you go up a little farther, uh, just at the bottom of the prior section, it said that the Linux VDA is configured by default as a multi-session machine. Um, I thought that was an interesting nugget there. Um, you have to manually or specifically set it if you want it to be a BDI-oriented workload. I don't know if anybody has any insight into that, but I, I thought that was interesting. And then that that relates to the section we were just going to discuss. Um, it looks like they set it up when they go through the MCS process in this article. They are setting it up as a multi-session machine. So, so. So right, Linux, Unix, and then Linux, those were multi-session machines, multi-user yep. machines from day one. <clears throat> Believe me, my Unix friends at my very first IT job like to make fun of me over that because I didn't even know what they were talking about at the time. Now I do. Um, but I guess Linux, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Linux by default is multi-user. Always has it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Yep. So when you go through that, the wizard that you're talking about here, the creating a machine catalog and related delivery group, this is very standard stuff. Uh, with the exception of the last screen there, which is the machine identity. Um, I mean, obviously, you're you're starting off with your your machine type. You're setting MCS, selecting the the image, um, you know, and then and then uh, where you presumably you would have taken a snapshot or something that you would leverage for that. But then um, it gets down here to machine identities, where you select non-domain joined, uh, and then of course give it the naming, uh, and then it runs through the magic that. It always does in Citrix and creates the um, creates the machines, the number of machines you requested with the name you requested. Yeah. Guys, any uh, additional content or comments on this section? Standard goodies. Yep. Standard goodies. Yeah. I would I would just say because I just looked this up, I wasn't sure, but there is a section when you're doing this with Windows where um, specifically with non-domain joined machines, you know, you're going to manage this with WIM. Um, as a way to push policies out to this to the to the VDAs, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing that WIMP supports Linux, so that could be uh, something to be aware of. Yeah, I don't think it does. WIMP mm. being workspace environment management. Workspace environment manager. Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, like we said earlier, you might manage Windows VDAs that are non-domain or that are domain joined with um, with group policy. Um, if they're non-domain joined, you know, how do you push out configuration settings and things like that? And you can do that with Windows Environment Manager. Uh, for Windows VDAs, doesn't look like it's supported for Linux yeah. though. So you're probably going into the actual template and making your setting configurations there, right, Patrick? Yeah, totally. Well, in, in mm -hmm. some cases, that's kind of you may want because you want this to be kind of like air gap from other systems, maybe one of the reasons you're doing this, so that you know with absolute every machine is the same and they're all just like this. There's no automatic thing changing stuff. Um, so it just means that updates, you've got to have a lot more attention to detail and stuff like that. But, you know, you can still do some cool stuff. Yeah. Okay. I will highlight the little screenshot here, which I think is, it, for me, it helps visualize. The machine is not domain joined, but the user has some type of uh, directory that's it's responsible for. That requires Active Directory or it doesn't matter at that point? That's, I think we kind of covered it earlier, but I'm just kind of validating. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So it looks like... There's an identity of some kind, but it doesn't need to be Active Directory based. Could be uh, could be any identity that's supported by Citrix Workspace, actually. If it's non-domain joined, it's probably a local identity. At least I know it is in the Windows world, right, Jeremy? Well, I'm, when you when you log into the desktop, it's using it's creating a local account. That's how I should frame it, as opposed to an identity. 
That is correct. That's correct. Yeah, it's logging you in. It's got to log you into Windows somehow, correct? Right. So it's right. creating one on the fly. Mm -hmm. So the next section of the blog kind of goes through once you're in there, if you want to either go validate yourself or go show off for your girlfriend, jump in there and start proving that you, you've done what you set out to do. Uh, and then the next section, I'll go to Todd on this, uh, making the making things scale with Rendezvous V.2 protocol. Uh, maybe, Todd, just a quick, quick recap on Rendezvous. We touched about a while ago, but then how does this help us cover the scaling part? Yeah, I think the biggest thing it's going to add in as far as value goes is Rendezvous was designed to kind of eliminate the need for constant going back and forth through the cloud connectors. Um, so once you establish that connection, it allows you to go and eliminate those extra hops as much as possible. And that uh, gets me out of single points of failure around cloud yeah. connectors and... Yeah. Yeah, I think so, the, original, the original Rendezvous protocol, V1, yeah. was designed to enable the actual ICA HDX traffic to go directly from the gateway service to the VDA. But the control traffic still went through the cloud connector. So the Correct. you know the concept of assignments and and generating the icon or generating the file that's needed to make the connection. Rendezvous V2 essentially has the VDA communicating directly with the cloud control plane versus the cloud connector. So in in most cases or in theory, and perhaps in practice, you could eliminate the cloud connectors altogether um, because the VDAs are communicating directly with. Um, with the control plane, the, and I, I should qualify that. The only question in my mind, and particularly in this article, is whether the cloud connectors are still required to enable communication with an on, if you're dealing with on-premises or perhaps even cloud to communicate with the quote-unquote hypervisor. And I don't, I don't know that that's needed. I think if, if you, if you're on-site, the answer is yes. Yes. And then yes. If you're in the cloud, no. Yeah, you're leveraging AWS or Azure. Right, um, because orchestration there's, there's some, directly. There's some peering yeah. stuff between the Citrus cloud broker and all the other hype, all the other right. clouds, so Good that point. you can just click next, next. Right. Yeah. So if you're on site, you still got Connectorpotamus, but now you've also got that Linux virtual appliance, which actually does a really good job. Right. Uh, and saves you some headaches of things to patch and maintain as much because it takes right. care of itself pretty good. I mean, Bill, if you were completely in one of the cloud infrastructures, you could get away with just having your VDAs in that cloud footprint, and that's it. Yep. No connectors, no yep. no Active Directory. Okay. It could just be desktops in that location. Yeah, right. In fact, it, it, it would feel a little arbitrary standing up a resource location because there's nothing that you would put in. There's, there's no cloud connectors there, right. Mm -hmm. Guys, this is such a, such a geeky, awesome <laughs> conversation. Uh, but we're running out of time. Uh, so, Todd, you want to take us home with the conclusion as to, well, I'll come around the horn, but why is this important? Why does it matter? Why do we cover it? Uh, primarily because of there's some new use cases that are coming out from customers who would traditionally avoid a desktop as a service offering because it didn't provide the flexibility that you get with Linux and the 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 cost savings associated with it. I mean, think about think about industries where you're spinning up a lot of different resources for very small, minute, well-defined tasks, um, where Linux is a really good alternative for them. Um, and it's something that they can control. Do you, do you think we look up in 10 years and it's like close to the default, if not the default? Could be. Uh, and uh, especially as we're starting to see more and more of these small form factor purpose-built devices that are out there. I mean, think about it, think about it now. I mean, uh, a lot of the gaming consoles are moving off of a 
well, they're either they they were either never on a Windows-based platform or they're moving off a Windows-based platform towards more of a Linux uh, open source type of uh, type of environment. Yeah. Yeah, that was in, that was AWS last week. Like I said, and I sat on a table one time with guys that said they hadn't been on Windows in over ten years. Uh, they were developers, so that makes sense. But you know, it's coming. There's more and more use cases, more and more users that are going to be like that. Yep. Jeremy, anything we left off here you'd like to make sure we point out before we let you go? No, but I, I will add on to what you just said with with Todd, right? So I don't. I mean, I think we we like to live in a binary world where is it all Windows? Is it all Linux? I mean, I think it's like the cloud conversations we're having now, where it lands somewhere in the middle. You know, customers don't go all in cloud, especially folks who have traditionally had an on-prem footprint. They land somewhere in the middle. You know, it's the use case that that drives the actual technology, which is which is guy which is fine. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest. Like on the East Coast that I cover, I don't quite often see Linux VDA as a big use case. Um, but there's a lot of parallels to this article and what I'm seeing customers do. In fact, Bill and I this week, this last week, you know, we basically did a POC for a customer where it was the same thing, but with Windows. It was basically no Active Directory, no connectors. They wanted auto-scaling, pooled desktops. They wanted it all backed with an identity that wasn't Windows-based and go. And to be honest, we were able to cook this thing up and make it work. And it wasn't that hard. So it was pretty impressive how far we've come and the fact that these tools are already in place that if that is your use case, you can do that today and you're completely supported. Yeah. So Patrick, how about you? Anything we didn't cover you'd want to highlight or maybe add on to this conversation? No, I think this is good. I think we've pretty much hit a lot of the points. Uh, I think if you're in a position where this could make sense, this is one of those options that Citrix has that other BDI vendors don't. And so this is something you really have to look at. And this is where I get excited about Citrix uh, because of its flexibility. And this flex, this shows that flexibility and that innovation and being able to come up. And this could have came from literally two or three clients telling Citrix, knock on the door, like, hey, we need this. And uh, here it is uh, at our doorstep. And that's what I've always kind of loved about the innovation. And it's not that, you know, VMware or WorkSpot or LeoStream or, you know, Microsoft don't do those same things, but it's great to see it working uh, yeah. and see these cool features. Well, this could be foreshadowing as to what they expect out of Citrix over the next five years now that the some other things have happened and they're going to go back to put more emphasis on this space. Yeah, agreed. All right, I think we lost Todd, but Bill. Last yeah, year. I would I would really I would really just echo what everyone else says. I in my view when I when I read this, you know, the Linux VDA uh, conversation is a lot of detail in this article about that and Linux certainly as a a target for use as a to deliver applications or desktops is is there and we've seen it um at Zentegra, but I think the big quest the big um identifier the big part of this article is the whole concept of non-domain joined um, and leverage being able to leverage that not just for Linux, which is what this article is all about, but also for Windows and potentially other, you know, other environments where customers maybe just have Google identity, maybe they just have Azure AD and being able to leverage that uh, to deliver a workload to their, their users. I think that's the key or perhaps the most important part of this. Yeah, Linux or not, I think a world of Windows that's not domain joined, but it's still managed is correct. A big part of yeah. the future. Yeah. 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 I think device management is going to be that thing that's 10 years. Uh, I've do a lot of, you know, obviously security stuff. And so I deal with a lot of insurance companies and doing cyber risk assessments for their insurances. 
And that device management is going to be there just like multi-factor authentication and endpoint protection and a SIM and a backup solution. Like that's going to be one of those like five core things that you have to have. Exactly. Maybe maybe that's one of the reasons why Citrix is bringing back that part of their story. It could be. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your time. This was a really good conversation. Hopefully our uh, listeners will appreciate it and we'll do it again uh, next week. All right. That's good. Thanks, gang. Later, thank gators. you. See you guys.